0: Last May I officiated a wedding. It was a beautiful wedding. It was in Moore Park, uh, at a place I hadn't been to before. I think it was more expensive than some of the other places I had been to before. Had like a beautiful pond with, with fountains going. It was really wonderful. Uh, it was kind of a perfect day. Everyone had their hair combed nicely. We looked really good. Uh, everyone laughed. They cried. The people shared their vows and they exchanged rings. They kissed. Everyone woohooed. It was really great everything you want from that. So after the ceremony, we went to the reception. And for you, I will say for you, if you have been to a wedding, the reception part is kind of straightforward. You go to the reception and you just kind of wait for that one appetizer plate to come by that you were hoping for, right? You're like, yes, this is really great. But the reception part is never the easiest part for me. And the you... Uh, Our experiences are pretty different because it's probably the same for any other pastor or somebody who has officiated a wedding. Because what has just happened was I just stood up in front of 100 or 150 people and I declared that I am a Christian very clearly. And if I made a joke that made anyone laugh, they think he's approachable. So now I can go tell him all the things that I think about spirituality. Sometimes people wanna come pick a fight, usually not too much, uh, but a bit. So at this particular wedding, I had several really interesting conversations following the service, but that wasn't what really stood out. What stood out was there was this one guest, she came up to me, she said she appreciated the service, she liked the jokes or whatever, and then she told me, you know what, I'm super spiritual too, like you, You know, we're kind of the same, we're super spiritual. I said, that is great, I can totally work with that. So that doesn't scare me, I'm happy to have that conversation. So I, I won't go into all the details of that conversation, but um, as we chatted a little bit, she kind of maintained, hey, spirituality is spirituality, Kind of, we're the same thing. But I kept pressing, I said, you know, it, it all comes down to the fact of who Jesus is. What did his life, his teachings, his death and resurrection mean for the world? And I maintained that that changes everything. If he is who he says he is, that changes everything. And I was praying. I'm like, Lord, how can I witness faithfully? How can I be winsome? What is something that's going to help unlock things for her? And uh, at some point in our conversation, she kind of in a way of trying to move the conversation on and be done with me. And she said, well, you just need to be true to yourself. And that is when the Lord really something came rushing back for me. And the Lord's like, oh, you're going to have an opening now and it's at your own expense." So the events from the day previous came rushing back to me, and I remembered this moment that I had said something really mean, trying to hurt somebody's feelings, and I think they even overheard it. Lovely moment uh, in my life, uh, you can imagine. Uh, so I had been feeling really guilty about that. I'd been feeling really heavy. And, and, I felt like something had been revealed about myself. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like, oh, you know, you just kind of trip up every once in a while. I felt like I had had a little bit of a view of what's actually in there. Like, like it's not like that was separate from me. That was part of me and it came out. Like, like it was showing. Like you left your fly down or something like that. Like it was showing. So she could see it. So she, here's the thing. So I said to her, I said, I have a problem with that being true to yourself. Let me tell you a story about what happened to me yesterday. I said something really mean about somebody else. I said, here's the thing. I was being true to myself. And she tried to play it down. She's like, no, no, no. You just had a little slip up or something like that. I said, no. And I told her the thing. I said, what I felt like was I was revealing something true about the condition of my heart that is underneath that I can cover up a lot of times, but it comes out. And and there are other times, to tell you the truth, when I successfully cover up what is inside of me. And I'm not actually being true to myself because I don't show the true meanness that's in there. I don't always fight it enough to hold it back and I don't always uh, succeed in being those things. So I I told her, I said, listen, I don't need to be true to myself. I, I I was, how could you say that I wasn't being true to myself yesterday? I was being true to myself. I I don't need to be true to myself. I need to be true to what God wants for me. And, And that sometimes means that I need to say no to Kurt. So I'm telling you that story because if you ever have to officiate a wedding, I want you to be prepared for what comes after. That's the first thing. The real work is obviously talking about your faith afterwards in the reception. Uh, but maybe you have also in your journeys, you have met somebody who has said that same thing to you. Hey, just be true to yourself. That's what counts. That Very often. Now, let's say, let's be honest, it's not always bad. When somebody says that, it is not all bad. There is There are ways of seeing being true to yourself that are very positive. It's It's kind of not giving in to peer pressure. It can be seen as uh, asserting yourself and not being a different person in different situations. That's fair. We should stick to our principles, and those are a way of being true to yourself. But it's more often said as a way of saying, hey, follow your instincts. Trust your gut. Follow your heart. And it can be an anthem of individualism. And that's the way I hear what Apple co-founder Steve Jobs, the comments he made. He made these comments at a Stanford University commencement speech in 2005. He said this, and most important, importantly, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They, your heart and intuition, somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. So he's saying, hey, you know, This seems different to me than making a decision and following it. He says, you know, just give yourself to your gut and that's going to lead the way. That's what you should give yourself to. The idea, though, of being true to yourself, this isn't a new thing. This isn't just a a 21st century thing. Uh, Shakespeare puts this phrase in the mouth of Polonius in Hamlet. He says this, this above all, to thine own self be true. So Polonius says it. But I want to say, I don't think that Jesus would have said, just be true to yourself or follow your heart. Actually, he is going to call us to something much deeper and more difficult. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian here, then the Lord is going to call you to chart a path that involves
1: forsaking your own life and following him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning that we're going to look at.
0: It's it's important for us to consider some of these things in our culture and we, we need to turn to your word to help us to understand who we are, who you are, who we are in relation to one another. And we pray that by reading your word, it will
1: shape our lives this week and for our lives to come. Do that work in our hearts, we ask you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: All right, this is the final week in our series, Stuff Jesus Didn't Say, or Stuff Jesus Never Said. That's what the actual thing. There you go. Stuff Jesus Never Said. Uh, It's meant to be a playful but meaningful look at some of the expressions that just kind of roll off of our tongue and that might not be in line with what Jesus said or taught. So we're going to try to examine some of our unquestioned thoughts that we have in a playful but kind of pointed way. That's the idea. We aren't sure if anyone actually thinks that Jesus said any of these things, but the reality is that some of these little phrases just come out of us and go unquestioned. You might hear these statements declared as though they are unassailable truth, like when the lady said to me, well, you just need to be true to yourself. Our hope is that when we look at these things in the light of what Jesus did say, that we're going to be able to make some decisions for ourselves. And in the end, we are going to find that Jesus' statements tend to demand more of us. They reveal darker truths about our lives, and they call us to more radically trust God than any of these other statements ever could. And and so for as confident as that woman was in the party uh, when she said her statement, I am more confident that if she had been talking with Jesus himself, that he would not have agreed with her. And the reason why I think that is because of Jesus' own words. Uh, Let's look at Jesus' own words. This is in Luke 9. We're gonna look at Luke 9, 18 to 26. So if you have your Bible, your Bible app, go ahead and open those up to chapter nine of Luke. And in this passage, uh, instead of telling us to be true to ourselves or following our hearts, Jesus is gonna tell us that real life and real honor
1: are only found in denying ourselves. Okay, Luke 9, beginning in verse 18.
0: Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life." So, the people, hold on there, we'll get to that. So, the people there are recognizing that Jesus is something special. He's a prophet, maybe more than a prophet, more even than he's got something to say. There's something powerful that God is doing in him. They're starting to recognize that. Then we get to verse 20. But what about you? He asked them very pointedly. He asked them, What's the world saying? But what about you? You guys have been with me, You've, you've been traveling with me, you've seen more than the average person. Who do you say I am? And then Peter answered, God's Messiah. So Peter, he's going farther than what the other people had said. I recognize that you aren't just a prophet. You're not even just a special prophet. You are something more. You are the Messiah. And this Hebrew word Messiah communicates that a person was anointed, that they took oil and poured it on their head that same exact word for Messiah is Christ. That like, like the idea, we, we know the word christen. So to pour on someone. And a lot of leaders were anointed with oil as they began their time of service as a king or as a priest. But when they're speaking about the Messiah, there were expectations of a coming deliverer that were in the Old Testament. There were lots of uh, passages looking forward to this one who would come in the line of David, who would be the king, who would rule forever. But in popular opinion, the Messiah was primarily a political figure who would cast off the Roman oppression. So it's going to be somebody who's political, and, and so we can understand that Jesus knows some of these currents going on for people because he uh, he is going to be the one who is going to actually fulfill what the Messiah is supposed to be, but he recognizes that they don't always understand what the true meaning of Messiah is. Because look, Jesus is going to help shape their opinion of the Messiah just afterward, here in verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Part of the idea is uh, they need to discover who he is and not come with their own expectations of who Jesus is first. And he said, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders,
1: the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. I think this would have been
0: really surprising to these disciples when Peter says, you're the Messiah, and they're like, yes! And he's like, and I need to suffer and be rejected and I'm going to die. That is not what they think. First of all, rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the teachers of the law. These are people who are looking forward to the Messiah coming. They're the ones who know scripture the most. They should be the ones who are excited for this Messiah to come. They're, they're not on some, they're not supposed to be given to some other political agenda. They're excited about the Messiah. Why would they not be the most ready for the Messiah? That's surprising. And secondly, his definition of Messiah is really different. He's If the the Messiah is somebody who triumphs in God's name, how could suffering and dying mean victory? And and that's partly, I think, why Jesus avoids the term Messiah when he talks about himself. He tends to call himself the Son of Man uh, because the suffering and rejection that were a part, a key part of his mission were incompatible with people's preconceived ideas of what the Messiah would be. But he, Jesus, he makes that mission central. He says, this is central to the mission of the
1: Messiah, this suffering and rejection. He's going to be killed and raised to life again. Then verse 23, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves
0: and take up their cross daily and follow me. So, if you want to be his disciple, we need to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. So, we're going to get to the deny ourselves in a moment. We're going to uh, put that one aside. Let's look at the first two. Take up your cross, follow me. So, he says, take up your cross. For us, as Christians, we jump pretty quickly to, uh, when we see the word cross, we, we come with our understanding of the cross being a good thing. We call it Good Friday. When Jesus died on the cross it's good because he rose again and we know what he was doing that he was dying for our sins we see we know the power that's included in that we know what Christ's mission was we we know the victory of his resurrection afterwards but at this point his disciples do not know that not in their heart at least they didn't have any of that understanding what they did have was the image in their mind of somebody carrying a cross Probably it's it's a criminal, somebody of low class.
1: Picking up your cross meant death. Once you pick up your cross, that's the end. It meant humiliation. It meant death. And there was no getting out of it. I, I think that must have that was not what they were looking for when he said, be my disciples.
0: Then he says, and follow me. So this cross that we pick up is meant to be connected to Jesus' own cross. He connects it with his own rejection, his own death, his own suffering. Is supposed to be connected closely to our discipleship. He just told them, hey, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And then he says, you should follow me. And that's not just meant for disciples who were 2,000 years ago. He's telling you, if you are going to be my disciple, you need to pick up your cross daily and follow me. He's telling anyone who would be his disciple. So following Jesus is not just reading our Bibles. It's not learning, just learning to pray. It's not, it's not just even growing in patience and in joy, and generosity, in forgiveness. Those are all very good things. We need to grow in those things, but following Jesus is also accepting
1: to die. It's accepting to face shame like our master. All right, so let's talk about this
0: denying ourselves part. This idea of denying ourselves feels a bit nebulous to me. I had some great discussions with some people during our Bible study this last week about what it meant to deny ourselves. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of things that it can be, but let's focus in on a couple of things that come specifically out of these verses that we've got here. So denying ourselves is a lot of things, but it is specifically accepting two things for Christ. It's going to be losing our life for Christ, and it's going to be facing shame for Christ. So, verse 24. For whoever, this is, so Jesus is going to start to explain this. For whoever
1: wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? When we save our life, it's an attempt for us to be the ones who are in control.
0: To set our own agenda. Hey, I I, want, I don't want to be out of control.
1: I, I want to be the one who sets the agenda. I want to I want to be able to set the timeline for things. I don't like it when I have to give that up. But he says
0: if we do that, if we try to be the ones who keep control, if we're the ones trying to set the agenda, even if we gain the whole world, we will lose our life. Even if you get everything, you lose no amount of money no amount of possessions no amount of amazing experiences in this life no amount of power and fame no amount of amazing marriage no amount of having perfect stellar kids that make your neighbors jealous none of that ever truly amounts to being real life in itself those are great things but that in itself doesn't amount To full life. You can have all those things, the whole world, but you can still lose. That's what Jesus says. That's not, that's not Kurt, that's Jesus saying that. If those things, if that really were the solution, then the people who are the most rich, the people who are the most famous, who have the most power, their lives would be good. I've seen enough news stories to know that they are not. There are enough rich and famous people who feel empty inside still,
1: who live even on the edge of despair, and they've got way nicer cars than I do. (laughs) True life is found in Christ. Even if associating ourselves with Christ puts us in danger, i have a friend from a muslim
0: background who uh, when his brother found out that he was a follower of
1: jesus uh, he threatened to kill him unless he gave up his faith in christ he had to end up fleeing his country instead
0: what if we pick somebody a little bit closer to us he's not here Uh, pastor roberto gioni let's pick on him for a minute you know you know how much time and energy he uses on god's kingdom he uses so much energy for, on that. And he's not famous. He's not rich. But he has helped plant churches across Latin America. He is encouraging people in different countries. He tra- he's trying to start the Evangelical Covenant Church right now in, Hon- in Honduras. So he's trying to gather pastors to give them some structure, a bunch of independent churches to say, hey, let's work together for God's mission. He's like, there's no pathway for this. When I call people nas- like in the national thing, how do I do this? They're like, I don't know. You got to make it up
1: yourself, bro. And he's like, okay. <laughs> he is losing his life for the sake of the gospel. But I'll tell you what, he is gaining so much life in the process.
0: And, and that's the thing. I, I will say, from Jesus' own words, self-denial is actually in our own self-interest. Self-denial is in our own self-interest. It is not a bad thing to save your life. But what Jesus says is our mode for doing it is different than what the world says. So you can save your life, but the path for doing it is giving your life up to God. So denying ourselves is going to be giving up our rights. We give up our rights to live by our own rules, And we follow God's rules instead. We want to follow God's way. That means the way that we spend our money and our time, the way we express our sexuality, the way that we interact with our friends, the way that we do things, we give up our right to live by our own rules. And we give up our right to put ourselves first. We get to be the first ones. We have to be servants instead. We give up the right to hold on to unforgiveness. We give up the right to be served and honored instead we choose to live like Jesus we choose to
1: shoulder the shame that people may have for us because of that and that brings us to the second part our second part is this is that facing we should face shame for Christ verse 26 oh what? Right.
0: I think that must be in the next part. See, I, I, I tried, Ray, I tried to put my slides, over the slide guys were like, you never do your sermon in the order you give me the slides. So
1: God bless them. Thank you for what you do. Um, <laughs> Verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words
0: The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and his holy angels and of the holy angels. Do you sometimes feel a little sheepish, maybe, about admitting that you're a Christian with people who you don't know? Do you find it hard to make a difficult decision to do what God wants rather than doing what your friends or your colleagues or your family are pressuring you to do? It's hard because, you know, we know that Christians have done shameful things. And I feel embarrassed about those people. I think we can admit, yeah, Christians have done shameful things. We, can, we can't just blend into our wider culture, though, because of that. We need to accept to be known as Christians. Taking up our cross daily means accepting that other people may not like the fact that we're Christians and we can worry about how we're perceived by other people, but that's really such a small thing. One of the interesting things I will think about uh, the position that Kevin and Tim have with IFES is that they hear stories about students in different cultural situations all around the world. They hear about different conditions that believers live in as they seek to to confess the name of Jesus faithfully in their context. I've heard about people in IFS who live in other countries who they had to refuse to give a bribe to their professor to get the grade that they wanted, and they ended up needing to repeat a course. They had to pay the price. They said, I'm not going to do that, and it wasn't like God just made it all go away. They had to take the class again. Or people who risk prison or family rejection for the sake of Christ. We don't face those kinds of situations often here. You may. Uh, I know people who come from Hindu background. It can be very difficult for them. Uh, We don't face a lot of those things often in the U.S. But I think the boldness of our sisters and brothers in other countries can be an encouragement to
1: us to proclaim Christ here in our own situations, our own life. So I want to encourage you. Stick around. To listen to Tim and Kevin afterwards. Sometimes we, we
0: underline, hey, our life is so much different than life in Jesus's time. It's really different. And it's true. It is quite different. But look at the hang-ups that people have here. They seem common to all people of all cultures. They're confronted with this question, who is Jesus? And the question is, will I follow him? Will I do what he says? And to every country and every culture and every time
1: since Christ, it makes it clear that he is the path to true life. He is the path to true honor. But his way seems super upside down. It's upside down.
0: So discipleship is to save your life by losing it. And Go ahead and put up that that quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a pastor... In uh, during the time of Nazi Germany, and um, Bonhoeffer says this: When Christ calls a man, he bids him come
1: and die. We save our life by losing it, and the other upside-down one is that we gain honor by facing shame.
0: So you and I, you know, we don't need to be true to ourselves. <laughs> we need to be
1: true to this self-giving Messiah and unashamedly follow in his footsteps.
0: That pathway of discipleship, it flows from the things that we said in the beginning. It all comes from
1: that penetrating question, who do you say I am? Have you recognized that Jesus is the Messiah? Have you taken that step? Is he the anointed king, the one true
0: one, the king of the world, and the king of your own life? you might be pretty new to faith or you might be somebody who has heard these stories for a long time and just like these disciples they walked with Jesus they had known him for a bit around them and at some point they suddenly understood and maybe you've had that experience maybe it grew over time maybe it was a specific moment where you feel like you understood immediately and they they continued to understand more deeply i hope that's your case as well even when you finally recognize who jesus is that you continue to take steps to grow in that So whether you are new to
1: this, though, or even if you've been around for a long time, Christ wants to ask this question to you. Who do you say I am? And if you say that he is the Messiah and the King, have you still tried to dictate to him what the terms of that relationship are? Have you tried to tell God what it's going to mean for you to be a Christian? Or, are you allowing him to tell you what it means to be a follower?
0: Because if we try to save our own lives, we are going to lose them. If we try to avoid shame now, we're going to have shame later. So, here's my challenge for us this week. At least once this week, this is what I would like for you to do. I want you to say something that associates you with Christ not just doing something, I want your actions to reflect Jesus as well, but can you say something that associates you with Christ? You need to say something. Uh, and not, not just associating yourself with something political that you think is kind of connected to Jesus, I'm saying clearly tied to Christ. You might have to say something like, hey, you might know that I'm a Christian and I would like to pray for you about that this week. Or, hey, you know what, Jesus tells me, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to, Jesus tells me that I'm supposed to love my enemies. That's not my natural instinct. I feel like I have to die to myself in order to do what he says. So if you're going to do that this week, you're going to be practicing picking up your cross. You're going to be dying to yourself. You're going to be welcoming some shame. But here's the thing. Real life and real honor are found in denying ourselves and following Jesus. Real life and real honor are found in denying ourselves and following Jesus. And it's not going to look like winning in the world. And sometimes it's going to look like the opposite. But Jesus himself backs up this statement. The highest, best thing is not to be true to ourselves. It's going to be truly, to be truly a disciple of Jesus. What you're going to find is that When you die to yourself, the crazy part is that you are going to find who you are in Christ. You're going to find your own value. I think you're going to be more uniquely you than ever before. It's not a a wiping away of your own personality. You're actually going to be able to be more uniquely yourself. You're not going to just be like everyone else. You're going to be more you than ever before. And... Let, so let's be done trying to prop up our own ego, trying to prop up our own image, or our own glory. Let's put ourselves on the solid
1: foundation on Christ. And I, I think you're going to find more joy than ever before. So, who is Jesus? Will you follow him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, this scripture, penetrating question that Jesus asks and his
0: unlikely answer And it's not what I would have come up with. It's not what I would even necessarily want. We ask you for the strength today to be your disciples, to actually follow you, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and accept what shame may come with that. Not shame because we just do something dumb that happens. We ask for forgiveness. But God, we ask for for the courage to follow you in our world today
1: and to cheer on other people who are doing that as well. We pray in Christ's name, amen.